Okay, our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 15, verses 10 through 20. This is found on page 821 in the Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take one as a gift from us. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were very offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here. I serve as the campus pastor and just want to add my welcome to uh, Kate and Victoria. Victoria, thanks for reading scripture for us. We're really glad that you're here this morning. Thanks for choosing to worship with us here at the Brookside campus um, this morning. And as we begin to look at this passage that uh, Victoria read for us from Matthew 15, I just want to start with prayer and then we'll um, consider this text, this teaching from Jesus together. So guide us, O God, by your word and your spirit, that in your light we may see light and in your truth find freedom. And in your will, discover peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, once again this week, we were confronted with evil, uh, evil on a mass scale, the worst mass shooting in decades. And, and in the aftermath of events like these, we all wonder what, what caused this and, and how can we prevent it from happening? Where does this kind of hate anger, hurt, violence, evil, where does this come from? And of course, following these events, the media and, and Facebook and all, they're filled with lots of different answers and solutions to these questions, aren't they? But, but the one thing that you almost never see in these moments are people repenting. And the one thing you almost never see posted on Facebook is, I've hated to have mercy on me. Everyone points to someone, something in these moments and says, that, that's the problem. But we almost never say, I'm the problem. That there's something inside of me that's so deeply broken that while I, I've never committed mass murder, that somehow I know that in some way I'm caught up in this mess too. That somehow I'm connected in, in some way to this kind of darkness also. And while it is true that in any particular instance of, of evil, of tragedy, of death like this, the, the motives, the circumstances, the influences are, are unique, but Jesus tells us this morning that the origin is the same. That the origin is the same. The evil, whether, Jesus says, whether it's something seemingly as small as a white lie or shoplifting a piece of gum or undeniably horrific as acts of terror, they come from the heart. In the Gulag Archipelago, written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he writes these piercing words. He says, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, 
and it were necessarily only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the dividing line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? And we so often treat evil as something outside of us that, that we catch like the flu. And if we somehow just work hard enough and use enough sort of spiritual and moral hand sanitizer that we can keep it at bay. But Jesus is showing us this morning that we don't catch evil, we leak it. It's not that we get dirty, but there is something inside of us that's already dirty. And this, in this passage, in what Jesus is teaching us this morning, we're going to see the problem he's going to show us. What is the problem? He's going to show us the origin and then the solution. So the problem, the origin, and the solution. And what we see in the first nine verses of chapter 15, the passage, or the passage we didn't hear read, is what the problem is. And first we have to understand the problem. And the problem, Jesus says, is that we go looking for dirt in all the wrong places. The problem is that we go looking for dirt in all the wrong places. And what happens that prompts the teaching that Jesus gives, that Victoria read for us, is another encounter with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees. And again, it's a confrontational encounter. Listen to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, so they come all the way from Jerusalem, that's key, and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And the Pharisees and the scribes, these were respected, well-thought-of religious leaders in the community of Israel as a whole, and they send a delegation of their leaders all the way from Jerusalem to the area around the Lake of Galilee where Jesus is living and working. It's a 31-hour trip. This is not a short, we just walk down the street. They take a long trip all the way from Jerusalem to where Jesus is at. So clearly who Jesus is and what he is doing is starting to be known widely at this point. But I think what's most fascinating about this 31-hour trip is what prompts it. Because if you were here with us last week and we looked at, at chapter 14, you remember that we were talking about the story of Jesus feeding 5,000-plus people with five loaves of bread and two little fish. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they don't come to inquire about that, this kind of reported of an incredible miracle of, of thousands of people fed from a, a tiny lunch. No, they come to investigate whether or not the disciples washed their hands before they ate it. So what's going on here? They're concerned about cleanliness, about the washing of hands, specifically this kind of ceremonial process of washing hands. What's the deal with, with that? Why is that such a significant thing? And it's important to recognize that in this particular moment, this issue of washing hands is not primarily a hygienic issue. It's, it's a spiritual, it's a religious act. So it's not about getting sort of physical dirt off. Now, just to be clear here, kids especially, Jesus isn't saying don't wash your hands. Um, it's an important thing to do. We have a lot of hand sanitizer around here for a reason. Jesus' point is that's just not going to fix your biggest problem. And, and the ritual of hand washing, which is actually, it's still practiced today by observant Jews in many contexts, ha has many elements to it. It's, it's a lot of ceremony, and, and it actually kind of goes like this. So first you would make sure your hands were hygienically already clean. So this wasn't about getting dirt off. If you had been out in the garage changing the oil and the donkey or whatever, you'd come in and you'd actually wash the dirt off of your hands. So your hands were, were physically clean. 
But then you would remove all of your rings, anything that you had in your hands, and then you'd take a cup of water. If you were left-handed, you would wash your right hand first. You'd pour water over it three times up to the wrist, making sure that you'd do covering the whole hand. Then you'd do the same thing on the other side with the other hand, except you know, if you were left-handed, you'd do it the reverse way, covering the entire hand. And then after the washing, you'd lift up your hands kind of chest high like a surgeon sort of and say this blessing. You'd say, blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the washing of hands. But you would only say that blessing if you were going to eat more than two ounces of bread. So if this was just a little snack, uh, you didn't actually do the blessing part of this. And then finally, you'd you'd rub your hands together to dry them, and then you made sure not to touch anything else until you actually began to eat the food. Now, cleanliness as a concept is a really important thing. In the, in the Old Testament, God establishes these norms of clean and unclean, which are not the same. They're not directly equivalent to good and bad or sinful or not sinful, but rather they were ways of helping God's people understand God's holiness and their holiness as His people set apart. And so it's not that the Pharisees' concern with cleanliness in the sense of, of the goodness of the Old Testament cleanliness laws was, was so bad. It's just that they had added more and more regulations like hand-washing, which weren't in the Bible. There's nothing in the Old Testament about this ritual of hand-washing. They were just traditions, just the traditions of men, Jesus calls them. And they began to look at those traditions as their hope instead of looking to God as their hope. And Jesus shows that while they're obsessed with keeping all these traditions in the rest of their life, actually they're they're missing the whole point of God's law and violating the law. He uses the example of honoring your father and mother. They're missing the real point. They, They dishonor their fathers and mothers while being obsessed, on the other hand, with keeping their hands clean in the ceremonial way, thinking that somehow this ritual will make everything all right. And this can seem so ridiculous to us, right? Even walking through that ritual together of hand-washing can feel so ridiculous to us. But we do the exact same kinds of things all the time. It, It just looks different in our cultural context because we still go looking for dirt in all the wrong places. Where are you looking? How do you deal with evil Is the problem internal or external? Is evil outside of us? Are we sort of only ever victims of of circumstances and, and our nurture? Or is it inside of us, part of who we are, that even if we have the very best of circumstances, even with the very best of nurtures, that there's something about us that's still deeply flawed and broken? And this is the big question that's posed to us in the text And both religious and irreligious people end up giving basically the exact same answer. And that is that the problem is essentially external. That it's outside of me. You see, religious cultures say basically I'm a good person and if I just have the right rules in place, I can keep them and then I can stay clean. But what happens though when a religious person can't keep the rules, which they inevitably can't, they often, they just add more and more rules and restrictions on top of those to keep them from breaking those rules, but then they end up breaking those, and so they add more. So, for example, you can tell if you work in an organization um, or at a company that kind of operates on this more religious approach and principle. You can tell because the employee handbook or the standard operating procedures, it's a really thick, fat manual 
because every time anyone ever did anything wrong, they made a rule about it and they put it in the employee handbook. Right? And sometimes we live our lives that way. We can just accumulate enough rules that, that somehow we can keep from getting dirty. But you see, irreligious people who don't operate out of a religious framework, they basically approach this in the same way. They say, basically, I'm a good person, um, but there's bad stuff out in the world that happens, and if we can just fix those things, then we can solve this problem. So they tend to deal with evil by pointing to circumstances. There's a a lack of education or economic opportunity. There's biological or physiological problems, chemical imbalances, or there's issues with nurture, a difficult home life. And while those are real things, and they often play a vital part, they too are external. They say the problem's outside of me, it, it isn't me, it's those things outside. This tends to be the more progressive or liberal approach, where the religious approach tends to be the approach of more traditional conservative people take. And in this passage, Jesus confronts and offends both the religious and the religious. He says both of them are looking for dirt in all the wrong places, and he challenges the underlying base assumption that both frameworks operate out of, and that's that I'm basically a good person. Jesus says the real origin of evil, of our dirtiness, is not external but internal. We don't catch evil, we leak it. It doesn't come from outside of us, but is already inside of us. The origin of the problem, Jesus says, is the heart. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. This is what Jesus has shown us over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, and other places. And as Jesus brings this to the surface with the disciples in this moment, there's just this this scene of just realness of humanness that I love in the Gospels. And it's actually one of the reasons that I trust the Gospels as eyewitness accounts and not just sort of made-up stories after the fact, because the interaction I'm about to read for you in just a moment isn't something you would make up about yourself as a disciple if you were writing down these things afterwards and just trying to make up a story. Because the disciples in this, they come off looking really bad. And there's moments like this all over the Gospels where they, the disciples, the ones who are actually writing this down, transmitting these accounts, actually come out looking really bad. It's not what you would make up about yourself. So take a listen to this. And Jesus called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And then here's this moment of interaction with the disciples. And the disciples came to Jesus and said, did you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And he answered, every plant my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, they will both fall into a pit. But Peter, again, kind of speaks for the group here, has the courage. But Peter said, explain the parable to us. And Jesus says, are you still without understanding? The disciples are basically, Jesus, you're embarrassing us in front of the Pharisees. And also, we still don't understand anything you're saying, (laughs) even after all this time. And so Jesus kind of has a little bit of a facepalm moment, and then he explains again what he's talking about. He says, do you not see whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, 
And this is defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The origin of evil, murder, slander, adultery, Jesus says it's not external, it's inside. And Jesus literally says, if you were to translate this text literally, he says, he literally says, your food goes in your stomach and then it ends up in the toilet. <laughs> he says, that's just what, it gets expelled. It's not what is coming into us that's the problem. It's what's already inside of us that's the problem. We don't catch evil, we leak it. But we also as human beings do incredible good. We're incredibly giving. We do incredibly heroic actions also. Because for every mass shooter, there are dozens of heroes who work to stop them, to care for those left in the wake. So how is it that we as individuals as well as all of humanity are capable of doing such good and also such evil? And the answer is is that we didn't always leak evil. It's not how the story of humanity begins. Humans are made in the image of God. Every single one of them, every one of you, from the moment of conception and for everlasting eternity, is made in the image of God, created to reflect and represent His goodness and beauty and life and joy and love. But when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, everything becomes tainted. And now every one of us is born with a disease. The great philosopher, mathematician, Christian thinker Pascal put it this way. He says, what sort of freak then is man? Just love that from an old school writer. What sort of freak then is man? How novel, how monstrous, how chaotic, how paradoxical, how prodigious. Judge of all things, feeble earthworm. Repository of truth, sink of error and doubt. Glory and refuse of the universe. Glory and refuse of the universe. That has the feel of truth to it, doesn't it? When we think about who we are as people, as we think about humanity, glory and refuse of the universe. Repositories of truth and sink of error and doubt. And it's not as though sort of some people are the glory and others are the refuse. And some people are the repositories of truth and other people are the sinks of error and doubt. It's like Solzhenitsyn reminded us at the very beginning, that's every single one of us. The dividing line of good and evil passes through the heart of every single one of us. The question for us is, are we owning the dirt that's in our own hearts? Again, in these moments of horrific evil, do we say, I've hated too? That I am what's wrong with the world? You see, both... Irreligious and religious people deny that sin at the heart level is the real problem. And this means for the irreligious person that the message that God loves you doesn't actually have that much power because if God does exist and he's love, then, then of course he should love me. That's what he does. And after all, I'm a pretty lovable, good person. If I make a few mistakes along the way, God should forgive. He should love me. But here's the thing, religious people, while they talk a lot about sin, they don't really believe deep down in their hearts that their sin at the heart level is the problem. 
Religious people do think sin is the problem, but they think that it still isn't at the heart level and that they can do it on their own. Tim Keller probably explains this better than anyone else, and I just want to read you a little bit of an extended piece from him on this. He says, The religious person may be extremely penitent and sorry for their sins, but they see sin as simply a failure to live up to the standards by which they are saving themselves. And this is how I lived a lot of my Christian life for a long time. They do not see sin as the deeper self-righteousness and self-centeredness through which they are trying to live their lives independent of God. So that when they go to Jesus for forgiveness, they are only going as a way to cover the gaps in their project of self-salvation. And when people say, I know God is forgiving, but I can't forgive myself, they mean that that they reject God's grace and insist that they be worthy of his favor. So even religious people with low self-esteem are really in their funk because they will not see the depth of their sin. They only see it as rule-breaking, not as rebellion and self-salvation. But you see, the heart of all sin is rebellion. It's about relationship-breaking before it's ever about rule-breaking. It's about rejecting a person before it's about violating a restriction. And it creates a separation. Just like when you're sick and and you can't visit a newborn baby in the NICU, our sin, it separates us from God. It it creates a separation not only before us and God, but ultimately between us and one another. And that's what the holiness codes in the Old Testament, those holiness laws were all about. But the religious leaders had slowly started to see those laws, those holiness practices, not as reminders of the reality of the problem with their hearts, but as a solution to managing their sin. And as religious people, which so many of us are here, we tend to so easily slide into that, to see the law of the Old Testament not as a means of understanding the depth of our own brokenness in our hearts, but as a solution to managing sin. And here's the thing. You can keep all the rules and still have no relationship with the God who made you. You can keep all the rules, or at least look like you are, and have no relationship with the God who made you. This is why Jesus, back in verse 8, when he was talking with the disciples, quotes Isaiah. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus is clear here. The external rituals and rules can never deal with the real problem, the heart. And if the heart is the problem and ritual can't help, what is the solution? The fascinating thing here is that Jesus doesn't really give us a solution in this text, not in this passage. Listen again to how this passage ends. Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And this is the moment now where we would expect Jesus then to give us some help. 
But the next verse says, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And that's, that's it. That's how the story ends. That's how the section ends. And Matthew is on to the next episode in his accounting of Jesus' life. Which leaves us as readers asking, well, how then do I deal with my heart? If the heart is the real problem, what do I do about it? Help us out, Jesus. Tell me, what do I need to do? But rather than give a solution here, Jesus lets the animating tension of the whole biblical story continue to build. Build ultimately all the way to the cross and the resurrection because he is the focal point of the story. Every page points to him. Every page whispers his name. And his death and resurrection are the bright center of that focus of the story. Because as you see, all throughout the Old Testament, um, and testament just means covenant, um, which is probably still not all that helpful because what does covenant mean? Well, a covenant is a way of establishing a relationship between two people. We, we talk about the covenant of marriage, entering into the covenant of marriage. It's a solemn commitment guaranteeing promises and obligations undertaken by one or both of the covenanting parties. And so all throughout the Old Testament, under the old covenant, God's people were given more and more laws only to continue to break them and fail. You see, they continue to play out Adam and Eve's failure in the garden over and over again, as do we, which, cre- which creates a massive tension in the biblical storyline. It's actually the tension that drives the entire plot of the Bible forward, and it's this. God has promised to his people over and over and over again to always love them, to always forgive them, to always be faithful to them, and yet they continue to sin. So how can God be just and deal with sin and also keep his promise to always love and forgive? This is the story. How can both of those things be true? How is God going to keep his promise and remain just? That is the whole tension that drives the entire storyline of Scripture along. If God is good and just and holy, he can't just overlook sin. He has to deal with it. Otherwise, he's not, he's not good. He's not worthy of our worship. But if God judges his people and cuts them off forever, then he breaks his promise. He, can't, he isn't true to what he's promised to do. And the law and the sacrificial system, they're all ways that point to a way of God being just and forgiving while also being good and loving. But again, the laws and the sacrifices never got the root of the problem in the heart, which is why the Old Testament prophets in them, we get these little glimpses that a new covenant is coming, a new way of relating is coming, a new testament is coming that will deal with this tension once and for all. And God, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, describes it this way. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. For this is the covenant, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, another one of these Old Testament prophets who's feeling this tension acutely, God makes it clear that this new covenant will do what the old one never could, and that is clean our dirty, evil, leaking hearts. Listen to this glorious promise from the book of Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, this dead, stony heart 
from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, this living, beating, alive heart, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, and you shall dwell in the land, and I will give to your, I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. The new covenant is coming, one that will do that and has come in and through Jesus in his death and resurrection. They are what make it possible. You see, Jesus through his death on the cross is where the tension, that great tension of how does God keep his promise and still be just, that's where it's finally resolved because on the cross, God's justice is satisfied and his love is demonstrated by taking the punishment on himself. He is able to keep his promise and still have justice be served. But it cost his son This is the heart of the gospel. It establishes a new covenant, a new way of relating to God that cleans us from the inside out, that actually gets at the core root of the problem, hearts that are rebelling against God. So how can we embrace the cleansing that Jesus makes possible? Well, three quick things here. First, admit that you need it. Admit that you've been looking for dirt in all the wrong places, that you've always said the problem is outside, not inside. Own that the real problem with the world with you isn't someone or something out there, but that the problem is you, that your heart is messy. Admit that you need it. And second, stop trying to clean it yourself. Give up on your own efforts to deal with it because you can come to a place, particularly as a religious person, where you see sin as a problem, but you still think that somehow you can deal with it on your own. And whether you've taken a religious approach or an irreligious approach to the problem, stop trying to clean yourself and instead believe that Jesus is able. Trust that He alone is the only one who can actually work from the inside out to get your heart to stop leaking evil that relying on him is the only way to get clean. Back in chapter 8 of Matthew, we get a beautiful picture of this. A leper, someone with some kind of a, a skin disease, comes to Jesus. And this, in Jesus' context, was someone who not only was unclean in heart, as we all are, but was actually unclean externally as well. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And in this moment, you see, Jesus actually reverses the cleanliness laws in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, if you were clean and you touched something unclean or an unclean person touched you, then you became unclean. Uncleanness was contagious. But Jesus actually brings a cleanliness that's contagious. He touches the unclean. He touches you and me. He touches the leper. He touches us, and we actually become clean. Rather than contaminating him, he actually is able to clean us. And this is the great promise for you, for me today, that if you come saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus' answer will always be, I am willing. Be clean. He can deal with the heart can replace that old, broken, stony, evil, leaking heart with one of life and joy and love. He can do it. Do you trust him to do it? Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we ask that through Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would give us hearts that are alive, that no longer leak the evil of murder and adultery and evil thoughts and slander and all this stuff that comes out, that comes out in our relationships and our workplaces and our marriages with our kids. Would you slowly over a long period of time, but progressively along the way, bring our hearts to life. Give us new affections, new loves. Show us where we're trying to work on this by just washing our hands with water. And instead, would we trust you to change us from the inside out? We pray this in Jesus' name.